0: come to you and we praise your name and we glorify your name. We've heard all about today how great and wonderful you truly are. And Lord, we do pray that our our hearts cry this morning with that we would be asking for more of you. Give me Jesus above all else, Lord. And I pray that that would be the call of our hearts and as we go into your this time of looking at your word, Lord, as a, allow us to see Jesus, allow us to see who we need to be in light of what Christ has done for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we have... uh, I'm going to have a chance now, as we began last week, a little mini-series, if you will. Uh, we looked at Colossians for a long time, and we looked at how, what does it look like uh, in Colossians to make, the Christ, to make Christ the center of your life. Uh, and last week, as we were thinking about what happens in our life as we make Jesus the center, the first thing we talked about was baptism. And so many of you were here last week as we talked about what, bapti- what baptism is, what baptism isn't, And then also a call to understand that baptism is vitally important to your Christian walk and uh, an encouragement to do so. And so once again, before we even get into this, I just want to say we still are looking for people who are looking to be baptized, who would like to identify themselves with Christ in a public way. And if that is you, please talk to myself, an elder, uh, and we will get you lined up to be able to do that. I will also briefly say, and this is just as an aside before we get into what we're talking about today, a few of you talked to me and asked me about uh, getting re-baptized. Now, this is an interesting concept. I'm not going to talk about it for a long time. If you have truly been baptized in Christ, you don't need to continue to do it. It is a one-time thing. However, some of you said when I was baptized, I either A, I don't think I was a Christian when I was baptized, or B, I think, I'm pretty sure I was a Christian, but I really had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I was basically doing it because I was told to do it. I would say if either of those cases are, for, are you, and you really were baptized and either weren't saved, or you were saved but you had no idea what you were doing, you didn't quite understand it, I would say please talk to one, myself or an elder, and we can see if that's something that even maybe you could be baptized again, but really you're not being baptized again. The first time you were just dunked, this time you can be baptized. So... Just to clear that up, I know I had some questions on that, so please talk to one of us if you'd like to know more. All right, but this is the week of Thanksgiving. Obviously, you know that. Uh, I am not, in, in, a, in a traditional sense, I'm not this morning going to be preaching on Thanksgiving. Um, we will hear some more about Thanksgiving on Wednesday night uh, as we come together for our Thanksgiving Eve service. Uh, but today, it's interesting as we come to Thanksgiving, because even though I won't be giving a specific sermon on Thanksgiving, there's going to be a lot of things that correlate today as we look at what we're going to look at today. And if you've looked in your notes, we know we're going to move on from talking about baptism, one of the ordinances of the church, and we're going to move on to the second ordinance, uh, and some would call sacrament, however you want to phrase that, but it is a, uh, an ordinance of the church. It's something that we do. And so we're going to talk about communion. Um, But as we think about Thanksgiving, you know, hopefully for you, Thanksgiving is more than just a day to eat lots of food, watch a lot of football, or shop all night. Those are different things that people do on Thanksgiving, I understand that, and I do some of those same things, and it's good and it's great, Uh, but really the essence of Thanksgiving is that we will gather together with people we love, and we will express our gratitude for what we have been given. Now maybe you have a tradition, some families have a tradition where you get around the table, you're eating the turkey, you're eating the feast, and one thing that you do is you share with one another what it is that you have been thankful for throughout that year, whatever that might look like. You know, our kids do projects, probably today this might even have happened in Sunday school, where they take, you know, they make like a turkey with their hand or something like that, and they write all the things that they're thankful for. That's the essence of Thanksgiving, is that we take time to remember what we have, and as we remember what we have, we can be thankful for it. And now, of course, there are many things that people can be thankful for, right? There's numerous and different, and it's different with each person. So some of you might be thankful for family. Some of you might be thankful for friends, some thankful for security or for your provision that you've been given, Uh, possessions even. We can be thankful that God has given us things that uh, we are happy for and that are good for our family. Uh, Also, of course, as Christians, we should be thankful for our very salvation. And we'll talk about that again on Wednesday, as I just mentioned. But so there's many different things we can be thankful for, the key element Uh, To Thanksgiving, though, and I mentioned this just a few minutes ago, but I don't think we often think about this. The key element to Thanksgiving is that you can't be thankful for something unless you remember it. That just makes sense, right? So as you come around the table at Thanksgiving to remember or to say what you're thankful for, it takes some time to think. You've got to think about what is it that I'm thankful for because we need to remind ourselves of the blessings we have. Because let's face it, we can walk through life and we can forget about what is truly important and we can forget about our blessings and we can take life for granted and we can continue to move through life and never take time to take, some, to take the chance uh, to really express gratitude for things. And there are many things in our lives, and I say this from personal experience, that I just take for granted, things that I don't, I'm not truly thankful for until I take the time to think about and remember what, we have, what I have to be thankful for. Now, as we think about Thanksgiving, we think about all those things. A time to come together with loved ones to express what we're thankful for as we remember our blessings. This is a beautiful and perfect analogy or illustration to the practice of communion. Because, you see, in the same way that we have that opportunity this week to get together with loved ones and be thankful as we remember what we have, uh, we also have an opportunity in the church as we remember our spiritual blessings and our new life in Christ. And as we remember those things, we can be thankful for those things and we can do that with one another. And of course, this thing that we have to do is not Thanksgiving, uh, it is called communion. Now maybe you call it the Lord's Supper, some people call it the Eucharist, there's lots of names for it, but in today I'm going to call it communion because I think most of us are very familiar with with that phrase, communion. And so when we come together, uh, we have an opportunity not only to remember what we've been given and what Christ has done, but we have an opportunity to be thankful and we have an opportunity to express that amongst one another. So we're going to take some time today to look at this tradition that we have, this ordinance, and see what it is all about, why we do it. And now you see that it's not in front here. We're not doing it today. We're not actually partaking of communion. And yet, so many times, you're thinking, why would you preach on communion if you're not even doing communion this week? But in truth, we are doing it this week. We're doing it on Wednesday. Notice I'm plugging something over and over again, right? Uh, Wednesday night, Thanksgiving Eve service, we have a chance to partake of communion and so before that I wanted to uh, take this time to examine communion and what I'm hoping will happen is I'm hoping that we will have a greater understanding first of all of what communion is all about that if you have any questions or you're trying to figure out why we do it why do we have these plates that we hand around that have little crackers on them and and have these little cups of juice and why do we do that and hopefully you'll understand that better but also I hope by the end of our time together today that we will see that communion is not just a tradition that's a weird tradition for the church to do, and it's just something we get through and do once a month and then it's over with, but communion is a vital and important part of our Christian walk, and that it's not just a ceremony that so many of us have come to see it as, but it has true spiritual power, it has true opportunity for us to remember and be thankful. And so that's where we're going to go. Uh, as a way of introduction, I already mentioned this real briefly, but I just want to give a little bit of background last week because as we understand baptism, that will help us to understand communion. Because last week we looked at the fact that baptism is the natural way that we display and de- declare Christ. That baptism is the natural way that we declare and display Christ to those around us. And we looked at the fact that Jesus is our identity, our, baptized, our baptism, shows our identification with Christ to the world around us. And so as we display and we declare him to the world around us, to other Christians, to those who are watching, we are saying, I am identifying myself with Jesus Christ. I'm identifying myself as a Christian, and therefore people can see that. And we looked at this, if you weren't here last week, this was, this. was I would say this quote kind of uh, summarizes all the things that we looked at. That baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. We looked at that last week. An outward demonstration of an inward transformation. And so we understand baptism a little bit. That's a little bit of a, a review. And if we understand what baptism is all about, that is a vital, important way for us to show our identity in Christ, then we see this as we come into communion. It has a direct correlation because this is the deal. If baptism is the way that we individually display and declare Christ, then communion is the way that we display and declare Christ corporately, or in community, if you want to say it that way. So once again, let me say that again. If baptism is the way that we individually display and declare Christ, then communion is the way that we display and declare Christ corporately, with one another. And so that's why I believe, as we talked about baptism now coming into communion, it's a natural progression. The Christ-centered life. It allows us to be baptized, to identify with Christ and show that identity, but then it also comes where we can, together as a body, remember and therefore declare and display the Lord Jesus Christ together through communion. So we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians today. That's where we're going to start. There'll be some other places that we'll jump around to, but we're going to start in the book of 1 Corinthians. Specifically, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-25 through 25 is where we'll start. But in 1 Corinthians, as we look through this book, we're going to see that there are three purposes for communion. That by the time we are done today, I hope you understand that there are three purposes. And you say three, there should only, isn't there only the one that we just remember? But there's, there's some deeper things to it if we take some time to look at the practice of communion. And so there's going to be three purposes for communion. And to help, and to help us remember these main purposes for communion, uh, Sometimes I I like to be clever a little bit, all right? So, but this was not even me. It just came to me. It was weird. But uh so if you, to help you understand the purposes of communion, uh as you see up in the title take this cup, C U P, and I'm going to use these three letters. So as you think cup you can think, what does communion mean? What is the purpose of communion? So you've got a C, a U, and a P, and we're going to look at those three things today. And I'm, simply, there's, that's obviously not even close to inspired, but hopefully it will help us as we try to remember the purposes of communion. And so the first one, in, as we think of cup, the first, the C, is this. The first and primary purpose of communion is for commemoration, Commemoration—that's purpose one. Commemoration and First Corinthians eleven twenty-three through twenty-five. If you're wondering what commemoration means, many of you will know the, what it means. You've used it several times. But it's interesting as you look at the definition. It literally means remembrance, typically expressed in a ceremony. Well, I think that's kind of perfect for what we're looking at. Remembrance, typically expressed in a ceremony, and so we commemorate something. When we come to the Lord's table, when we come to communion, we commemorate something. And let's see what it is that we are commemorating. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. For I received from the Lord what I also declared to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I I went one verse longer, and we're actually going to look at verse 26 later on as we go through uh, what communion is all about. But the first thing we see here, commemoration, it's remembrance Right, two times here it says that we take the bread and we take the cup in remembrance, in remembrance of Jesus Christ. And so we see that first of all, and we remember Christ, there's two parts that we remember. The first thing we remember is I'm going to say we remember the past. We remember the past. You know, Jesus is speaking in the present here, obviously, he's with his disciples, and as he gives communion, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what are we remembering? We're remembering Jesus, and we're remembering, first of all, the past. We're remembering what Christ has done for us, and through us, and in us, and we are remembering that. But a little bit of background as we go into communion, as we remember the past. The first thing we're going to look at, though, is that communion is rooted in the celebration of Passover. This was not a new thing. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper or Communion, when he is with his disciples, it is during the Passover meal. And as he does this, he says, do this in remembrance of me. This was not just a random meal that Jesus had with his disciples that he decided to have to teach them remembrance. See, Jesus understood that this this supper that they were already eating together was already very much veiled in remembrance. And so when he then takes it and says, do this now in remembrance of me, he is saying, look, I know you've remembered other things, but now you need to remember me. But let's take a minute to talk about the Passover. So the Passover is where this the context of the Lord's Supper takes place. Jesus does it here. He's changing the ideas of the disciples as it comes to what they should be remembering. So what is the Passover? Many of us know the story. I'm going to quickly summarize it for those of you who might not be familiar with it. So the Passover story in scripture is simply this. The Israelites are in Egypt, they're slaves. They've been uh they've been in slavery for a long time. They've been calling for a deliverer. Moses is called, if you know Moses, he's called to bring them out. You know, the burning bush. Jesus or God comes to him and says, "Look, Moses, you need to uh you need to bring your people out. I will lead you. I will be with you." And and God says that to Moses. Moses is called to bring the people out. He goes to Pharaoh. He says, "Let my people go." Pharaoh says, "No." Uh, time and time again and so God brings 10 plagues Uh, I won't list all the plagues here you can read them all in Exodus but 10 plagues that devastate the land and prove that God is has more power than any of the Egyptian gods and in these 10 plagues we see the final plague is the death of all the firstborn children And, and not only human but also livestock and things like that and we see that all these people who have not who are not Israelites, and we'll talk about that in a second, are, the firstborns are killed. That is the tenth and final plague that eventually leads Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But in this final plague, in this firstborn death plague, we see that God makes a provision for his people. God made a provision, and what he told them is to find a spotless lamb, uh, sacrifice the lamb and then spread the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, so that when the angel of death comes through and when the angel comes through to kill the firstborn, you will be protected. And so the angel of death then as he comes by uh, to kill all the firstborn passes over the houses of the Israelites who have put the blood on their doorposts. That's the story of the Passover back in Exodus. And see, from that point on, in Exodus 12, you can read, we can read a lot of this if you want to go there, if you want to look at that. Exodus chapter 12, I would encourage you to read that. We see in Exodus chapter 12 that not only is the Passover an event, but the Passover becomes a ceremony. That the Passover is something that they, ha- they should do every year. God told, tells Moses that. He says, to remember what is happening, to remember what I am doing every year, do a Passover. Have a Passover celebration, a Passover meal, and that is what the Israelites do. That's what Jews still do till, to today. They have Passover. And we see that uh, he commanded them to celebrate the Passover each year, to commemorate that passing over. Now we see this, too, in verses 26 and 27 of Exodus chapter 12. and I know we didn't turn there, but if you look there, it also, Moses says, you need to do this for the sake of your children. So that when your children come and say, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this meal? Why are we killing the lamb? Why are we eating unleavened bread? Why are we doing all these things that then the parents can remind the children of what God has done, that he passed over them that they did not receive the judgment that everyone else received, and therefore they experienced deliverance. That was the point of the Passover celebration. And so we see that Passover is where it is rooted. Now the interesting thing is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, and I actually want to turn there because we're already in 1 Corinthians. So go back to chapter 5, verse 7. As we understand what the Passover was and that they have a ceremony to remember the deliverance that they had received from the Lord, that they had received deliverance and salvation, here's the interesting thing in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 7. And it says this. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And that's the phrase I want to focus on. Here's the beautiful thing. As we remember our past, yes, Passover was the Israelite way to remember their past, their deliverance and their salvation from uh, not only from that plague but also from Egypt. Communion reminds us of our forgiveness bought by Christ. Because Jesus is our Passover, as we just read. That Jesus is the Passover lamb, and therefore he is the sacrifice that has given us deliverance and given us salvation from sin. And not only from sin, but from judgment. And so Jesus now functions as our Passover, that as we remember him, we remember that God has passed over us in his judgment and instead has shown us mercy as a result of blood, the same way it was in the Passover. But this is not the blood of a physical, real, literal lamb. This is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so we know that we can have forgiveness bought by Christ, bought by his blood, in Matthew twenty six, twenty-eight, as Jesus is giving the Last Supper, as he's talking to his disciples, I'm going to turn there quickly. You're welcome to turn there with me. Jesus says a key element as we come to the blood, as we come to the cup that is being partaken. And we see in Matthew twenty six, twenty-eight, that Jesus says this. For this is, my blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is in the midst. I'll read the context. This is it. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and said to the disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says when he's with his disciples that he is the way to forgiveness, that his blood is the way to forgiveness. The deliverance and the salvation and the forgiveness that we have been given is Jesus' blood. He is the new covenant. He has given us new hope. He has sacrificed himself for our sins, and we now can be forgiven if we come to Christ. That is our Passover, we no longer have to uh, remember what God did in, in, in Egypt, although that's something we still read about and remember and understand the goodness and the mercy of the Lord. Now we have Jesus Christ who is our ultimate sacrifice, and we don't have to sacrifice lambs anymore because he is the sacrifice that brought us forgiveness. If you have any more questions about that, I invite you to read Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, obviously we won't read both chapters this morning. But in there we, we see that Jesus' blood is the only way of remission of sins. That Jesus' blood as the one-time sacrifice for sins gives us remission or forgiveness for sins. Also 1 John 1, 1.7 says that we are purified through his blood. And so we see that the blood is important. And Jesus is showing us as we come to communion we are commemorating not only our past that he has saved us and given us deliverance and salvation. That all of these things that he has given us remission of sins through his blood. So that is the past that we remember. But also in this process, we see that Jesus wants us to be reminded not only of our past, but also of the future. And that's the next thing we're going to look at. We remember not only the past, but we remember the future. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Uh, in, the, in the passage we read, uh, it says uh, very simply, uh, and it's kind of lost in here, but at the end, in verse 26, this is what it says. After it, he says, do this in remembrance of me with the bread and the cup, then he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Three words in this passage, but vitally important, that as we come together to remember Christ's death, as we come together to remember the forgiveness that he bought for us through the breaking of his body and through the shedding of his blood, we remember that, and that is great, and we remember what has been done, but we also need to remember that Jesus is coming again. We do communion till he comes. And Jesus, uh, or Paul inserts this phrase here because I believe that even Jesus, and we'll look at this in a second, wants us not only to remember what he's done, but what he's going to do. That we not only remember what he's done for us, but what he's going to do in the future. In Luke chapter 22, this is another time, this is one of the other gospels that records the Last Supper of Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, uh, this is one of those passages that we see this happening. And Luke, as he records this, this is what he has to say in verses 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, "'I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God.' And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, "'Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes.' And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Two times here, in this passage, we see Jesus make this statement, that he is waiting for the kingdom of God to be fulfilled, that he will not eat or drink again of this cup or of this ceremony. He will not be with them again until the kingdom comes. So we are looking towards the kingdom of God being consummated. We are looking, we are not only looking back to what Jesus has done, but we are looking forward to what we know Jesus is going to do, that he is going to consummate his kingdom here on the earth, and that it will be, he will be in, that he will be on the throne, even though he is spiritually, he will be on the throne physically, and he will redeem this world, and we know that to be true, that the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus wants to remind his disciples here in Luke 22, of the future reign that is coming, the future kingdom that is coming, and we need to be reminded of that as well. Now, if you look back at Luke, you see that then the, the disciples start arguing about who's going to be greater in the kingdom. That's there, That story comes in. So all of a sudden, they're like, okay, if we're going to be in the kingdom, then, man, who's going to be the greatest? And of course, we know that Jesus uh, rebukes them for that. But here's the deal. What we understand is that they were looking forward to the kingdom, that Jesus' death was not the end, that there would be one day a kingdom of God that would be coming and Jesus then would, uh, would be able to partake in this communion again, in this supper. This is a great allusion to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You can look in Revelation to read about that. There's, that will be the time when Jesus consummates all, and everything will come together, and he will again eat this bread and drink this cup. So it's important that we understand that in communion we not only remember what Christ has done, but also what he will do. And here's the thing I want to say as we remember these things. As we remember the past, what he has done, who he is, what he's accomplished for us, and as we look to the future of what he's going to be doing, it should cause us to do one thing, and that is to be thankful. We need to be thankful for what he's done and what he's going to do. Remember I said earlier that communion is one word for what we do. It could be the Lord's Supper. Another one a lot of people use is the Eucharist. Now, if you don't know what Eucharist means, it means to give thanks And that is part of communion. It's not only remembering. You can remember something, but if you still don't remember what it was for and be thankful for it, then what good is the remembrance of it? And so therefore, we remember what Christ has done, we remember what Christ is going to do, and we are thankful to him for it all. And so that's why I think Thanksgiving is so beautiful as we look at this. This is part of the reason why we do communion on Thanksgiving Eve. So we remember what we have to be truly thankful for, which is the death of Christ and also his future reign. So perhaps the most obvious and important purpose of communion is the remembrance of what Christ has done and what he will do, commemoration. However, there is also a key purpose that we sometimes can miss, and this purpose is our second one, and that is that it's to declare and to display unity with Christ and others. So our second purpose, our first is commemoration, our second is unity. Our second is unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about why we do communion. We remember and we are thankful and then we move on to unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to be looking here um, at verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one Bread. All right. So this is Paul. And this is before he gets to talking even more in depth about, uh, in chapter 11. Even more in depth about communion. and Even more in depth about how they come together to take the cup and to take the bread. But he wants to remind them of something here. And this is in the context of him telling them that you can't uh, submit yourself to idols and also submit yourself to God. But in the midst of this, we see something vitally important. Is that when we come together for communion, we are participating with jesus now the interesting thing here is the word participation literally means it's koinonia which means fellowship so really this word could be translated fellowship as we think about this we see that as we take the the cup and as we take the bread it is a fellowship with christ it is a fellowship in the blood of christ it is a fellowship in the body of christ and then it says that we will be in fellowship with one another as well and so we're going to look at those verses and we're going to see that unity. First, we have fellowship with Christ. As we just looked at, we have fellowship with His blood and with His bread, with His body. We have a real fellowship with Christ when we partake with, of communion. It is, it is a way that we can truly not only remember, but we can feel we can be unified with Christ, we already are unified with Christ. So it's not about giving us unity, but it's about us remembering our unity. It's about us displaying our unity, and we are one with Jesus. Remember last week, we looked at Romans chapter chapter 6. You know, that we are one with Christ, that we are one in, with him in baptism, we are with him in his death, we are with him in his resurrection, and we are united to Christ. So as we come together for communion, we not only remember what he's done and what he's do, going to do, but we also take time to display our unity in Christ, that we are one with him. And so this is how we display that as we come together and we remember the unity that we have with Christ. Now, this is not a physical unity, but a spiritual unity. And why do I say that? Well, I've got to take a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, if you will. Not really a rabbit trail. But many of you know that there are other denominations in the Catholic Church and others that actually believe that as they take communion, that the, that the wafer, the bread, whatever it is, and the juice or the wine becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. That as we take it, something happens some miracle takes place where the bread is no longer bread and the juice or the wine is no, mo- no longer just a drink, but it's the literal body and it's the literal blood of Jesus. And even though we can't taste the difference or know the difference, somehow it's making a difference in our lives as we physically really take Jesus' flesh and physically really take Jesus' blood. And some of you might think, well, that's absurd. Some of you may have come from traditions where this was believed. And so I want to talk about that really quickly. One of the reasons that some people will believe this is because Jesus, when he comes to communion, says, this is my body, or this is the blood. So, therefore, if he's saying it is, then it must be. He's, it's literal, so it's got to be. So it's got to really be his body and really be his blood. Now, the interesting thing, if you think about that, the word is can be used that way, but it also can be used as a metaphor or a simile. And now we see, uh, and we see Jesus doing that a lot. Right? If you know what Jesus taught, remember, Jesus said he's the bread of life. <laughs> I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the living water, and so on and so forth. He uses a lot of phrases like that as he ministers. And obviously Jesus wasn't saying that he was a literal piece of wood with hinges. He wasn't saying that he's literally a bowl of water. He wasn't saying that he's literally a loaf of bread. But it was a metaphor of showing that he is the sustenance and he is all those things in a very spiritual way, but obviously not in a physical way. And so I don't find that to be a good reason to say that this has to be the literal body and blood of Jesus because obviously Jesus has used metaphors before and here's another obvious thing right Jesus when he gives the communion says this is my body and this is my blood but what's the, he's there right so he's already there so why would he say this is going to this is my body this is my blood so what is he going to do is he going to rip off his flesh and and give his blood right there so that they can partake of him partake of his actual body and his actual blood, it doesn't make any sense. Jesus was already there. He was obviously saying that this was a spiritual reality, that this was a metaphor, that this was a symbol. Uh, Now, here's the deal. Uh, So then people will start wondering, is Jesus really present in communion? Is he really here in a a special way? And I'm going to say this. Jesus said when he left us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. And he's with us through in, in and through communion, just like he's with us as we participate in life. But the point is, is as we come to communion, we can have an opportunity to remember our unity with him, our opportunity to spiritually connect with Christ in a way that is different, possibly, than the other parts of our life. And yet, he is present, of course, because he always is, but it's not a special presence. And so we. here is the thing. You say, why does this matter? You know, if some people are weird and want to think that it's body and blood, who cares? Um, but there is a big deal to this because what happens is if a lot of people who would believe that, literally what they're saying is every time we come to communion, we are re-sacrificing Jesus because his body and his blood are being broken and shed again for our sins. And that's why a lot of churches and a lot of uh, religions will say that you need to continually come back to communion. That's what the Catholic Church would say. That is what you need to continually be coming back to because that is where your sins are being sacrificed for you. Now, if you don't know why that's a problem, I would encourage you, please go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10-14. through 14. In Hebrews 10, it's very clear that Jesus, when he gave his life, when he shed his blood, it was once for all. One sacrifice that would pay for all sin. That we don't have to keep going back to the sacrificial altar... Jesus replaced that system as we think about the Jews. That's what they had to do. They traditionally had to come back and offer a sacrifice time and time again and that is how they atoned for their sins and Jesus comes and says, you don't have to do that anymore. I am a sacrifice once for all. The blood that I shed has given you forgiveness. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to do anything to maintain this forgiveness and yet some churches have taken communion and made it more than it should be and they've made it into something you have to do in order to be right with God or something you have to do in order to receive forgiveness on a weekly or monthly basis, whatever it might be. And that is just flat wrong as you look at Scripture. Jesus is the sacrifice once for all. And so as we come to communion, we come to remember and we come to be thankful, we come to show our unity in Christ, and it's nothing to do with our salvation. It is important, but it is not necessary to be saved or to be forgiven. But we not only have unity with Jesus, we also have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another. We already looked at this briefly in this passage where it says, first of all, we have a participation in the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And then it says, because there is one bread and, many who, and who, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We all have come to Jesus, and as Christians, as we come together for communion... That very idea of the word communion is to come together for union. So we're looking at community and union and they're coming together. And here's what we get to do. Not only do we display our unity with Christ, but we can display our unity with one another. We have fellowship with one another. And we see this here in 1 Corinthians 10. And then we also see the idea put forth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as well. But the first thing we see is that we are one with one another because we are one with Jesus. That's what we just saw in chapter 10. As we are united with Christ, so if you are united with Christ and I am united with Christ, then we are both united with Christ, which means we are united together. Does that make sense? We are all united and therefore we can declare and display this as we come to communion. Now the Corinthian church did not understand this and we can see this in chapter 11. In chapter 11, we see that the Corinthian church abused communion out of selfishness and disunity. That they abused communion out of selfishness and disunity. And so let's just read real quickly chapter 11, verses 17 um, through 34. It's a long one. Uh, We're going to get through it fairly quickly. So chapter 11, starting in verse 17 What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? For what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink this cup or eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. However, whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In this passage, we see some truth coming out. We see that the Corinthian church has abused communion. Paul is talking about it. He says, look, you're you're divided. You are not coming together, but you are coming apart. That you are eating and drinking to your own good to your own pleasure you're getting full and you're getting drunk and you're not considering the others and a little bit of context when they were doing communion in the early church they did it as part of the agape feast so it was kind of like one of our potluck suppers right so they're all together sharing food with one another and what's happening is the rich people are coming in and eating all the food and drinking all the wine and not leaving anything for those who are poor Probably, in a sense, they were thinking, we brought most of the stuff, so we're going to enjoy it the most we can. And so it's become a thing about being selfish and disunified. There's, there's factions now. There are different areas of the church. It's clicky. There are people that are being abused and people that are being, are being the abusers. And we see this being true in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as we understand that context, that's the backdrop in which Paul then tells them how to do communion. He says, look, this is what it's for. And then he says, therefore, whoever eats and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Later says that some are sick and even dying because of this. Well, this is an interesting thing that I want to talk about for a few minutes. Because a lot of times I feel like we come to communion and we have this understanding that we somehow have to be worthy to take the elements. That we have to be pure enough to come to the table. Now, we would never say that about our salvation. We would never say that I need to be good enough and clean enough for me to come to Jesus and then for him to forgive me. But first got to clean some things up and then I'll go to him. Actually, the opposite is true. When we go to Christ, we come with all our brokenness. We come with all our sin. We come with all those things and we beg for forgiveness. That's what we do. And so I want to say this. This passage says, don't approach communion in an unworthy manner. It does not say don't approach communion if you are unworthy. Because if we couldn't come to communion because we're unworthy, because we're facing a sin, we're dealing with sin, we're, we're having failure in our life, if we can't partake because of that, then nobody should partake of communion. Because we all have issues, we all have sin, we are all struggling. And if you think you're not, then you're lying and you're struggling too. First John would say that. It's not, not my words. It so says, if you say you're not a sinner, you're a liar. That's what it says. So, here's the thing, though. As we come together, then, what does it mean to take in an unworthy manner? Well, if you look at the context of this passage, and even as he continues to go, and he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and this is talking about the body of Christ, if you are not discerning the relationships that you have with one another, if you are living in a selfish and divisive way within this church, or within your life, if you are living a selfish life in which you are being, and if you are divisive with one another, That is an unworthy manner. If we come together to say, look, we are one with one another as we're one with Christ, and yet what really is happening is we're not one with one another, we're not unified, we're backbiting, we're gossiping, we're hating one another, we're walking away from one another, we're not loving the way we should, and we're being selfish, and we're being divisive within the church or within our relationships, and yet what we're doing is when we come to communion, we're lying. And that is an unworthy matter. An unworthy manner of coming to the table is to say we are one with Christ and we are one with one another and yet I want to be divisive and I want to be selfish. That is not what we are called to be. So that I believe, and there are many different opinions, but I believe as you look at the context of this passage that this idea of taking communion in an unworthy manner has a direct correlation to your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we examine ourselves, what are we examining? Yes, we're examining our personal sin, absolutely. And if there is unrepentant sin in our life, then there is an issue and we need to repent. But we also examine the relationships that we have with one another. Is there a selfish or divisive heart within me? And if there is, then we should not partake. Because Paul, earlier on in this 1 Corinthians chapter 11, says, hey, it'd be better for you not to take the Lord's Supper if you're going to be doing it in a selfish way. And so... As we think about this, we understand that we come to communion not only to remember, but also to show our unity with Christ and with one another. And so when we go to communion, we need to consider those things. But there's one final purpose this morning that we're going to talk about. The one final purpose of communion that really encapsulates the other two. As we remember Christ, and as we show our unity with him and with others... Communion also becomes a way that we proclaim Christ. Communion is a way that we proclaim Christ. Verse twenty six of First Corinthians chapter eleven. For as often as you eat and drink or as, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How do we proclaim the Lord through communion? Well, we've already talked about how that happens. How do we truly proclaim who Jesus is? How do we proclaim what Jesus has done? Well, first of all, we declare Christ, right? We declare Christ. We tell others about Christ. And that starts as we remind one another and also the world what Jesus has done. When we come together for communion, we are remembering what Jesus has done. We are remembering what Jesus is going to do. And as we remember and remind one another, because we are doing it together, we are proclaiming Jesus We are proclaiming what he's done and we are proclaiming what he will do. We are declaring that to one another. We are declaring that to the world. So that is a way that we can proclaim Christ. And the other thing, not only do we declare Christ, but we display Christ. So as we come together to remember Christ, as we come together to show our unity, then our unity in our remembrance shows the world what Jesus has done. Remember In John, we're told that they will know you are my disciples by your love. And the same is true as we look at this. If we have unity, unity is not seen in this world. There's fighting, there's bickering, there's disunity everywhere you look. There is no place that you can look to find unity. The place that we should be able to look is the church of God. We should be unified with one another in a love that is so different and weird that people will look at that and they will know that there is something different and we can point them to Jesus Christ. And so we come together for communion and we proclaim Christ in a very real way. We proclaim what he's done, we proclaim what he's going to do, we display that through our unity. And so that gives us our three things, cup, C, commemoration, U, unity, and P, proclamation. Proclamation. As we come together for communion, these are the purposes. It is not just an empty ceremony that we come and we have a stale tasting piece of bread and uh, a swallow of grape juice it 's so much more than that, so much more than that, and no, it does not give us salvation. it does not partake to us it give us special. Uh, forgiveness Jesus has given us forgiveness through his death and through his blood and we know that to be true and yet it is vitally important because if we don't remember and if we don't unify and if we don't proclaim then we are missing out on what God has called for us as Christians and as the church to do and we will miss out on the opportunities and on the blessings that we can have if we come to communion and understand it for what it is And one other thing I'll say about that as we think about re- remembrance, there was a quote that I found from somebody and it said this basically, the lack or forgetfulness is always the seed of apostasy. When we forget Christ, when we forget one another, then we'll walk away. And that is just what happens. And so we take it for granted and we walk away. And yet we need to remember through communion. So, in conclusion, a few questions as we always end with some questions for you to consider. First of all, have you experienced the Passover of Jesus Christ? Have you truly been forgiven and delivered? Have you truly come to Jesus and begged for his forgiveness because of his sacrifice? You have sinned, you have no hope, but you are going to hell unless you come to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness, you repent, you give him your life, and he will save you, he will deliver you, and he will be your Passover if you come to know Jesus if you truly come and ask for forgiveness and deliverance through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He is the one sacrifice for all time. You don't need to sacrifice for your own sins. He has sacrificed for you. And if you don't understand that, you'd like to know more, please talk to me or someone that you know loves Jesus, and they will explain to you more what it means to accept Jesus as your Passover. Do you take time to be reminded of God's work in your life and are you thankful for it? That's a question we all need to ask or do we take it for granted? Are you being divisive and selfish in your relationship with the church? Do you find yourself, if you take the time to examine your life, do you find yourself living a selfish and divisive life that is not the calling of Christ? And if that is you, then you need to repent of that and you need to come and ask forgiveness and make things right with people so that you can be, not have to worry about taking communion in an unworthy manner. And finally, have you made communion an important part of your Christian walk? Have you truly made communion an important part of your Christian walk? Or is it just something that we do at church that's kind of weird? We do it and then you leave and you don't think about it. And I would venture to say that many of us are there because I know I have been. It's just something we do. We take communion, we don't really think about it. It's bread, it's juice, it's done with. We sing a nice song, and it's great. And we leave, and we forget. That's not what communion's about. We need to take it seriously. We need to understand that what we're doing in communion is not only remembering, which is vital, but we're being thankful. We are showing unity. We are proclaiming Jesus. We don't want to miss out on that. So have you made communion an important part of your Christian walk? Some people might even not even come to church some days when it's communion because they know it'll go a little longer. We're <laughs> missing out on a blessing. And so I want to say this last thing. I've already plugged it a few times, but this Wednesday, we all have a chance to observe communion together, right? Wednesday night, Thanksgiving Eve, and I know... Thanksgiving's the next day. You've got stuff to get ready for. You've got a busy time coming up. You've got family coming into town or you're going to see family. I don't know what is all going on in your life, but I know that busyness can say, you know what, it's not that important. It's just the Thanksgiving Eve service. Think about how many times maybe you've said that. It's only the Thanksgiving Eve service. But you are going to have an opportunity not only to share what Christ has done together, to remember what Christ has done, but we are going to partake in communion together. And we will have unity, we will have remembrance, and we will be able to proclaim Christ to one another. And I would, I would encourage you and urge you and beg you, don't take it lightly. Don't take it lightly. Be here. Please be here with us as we proclaim Christ together. So that's my conclusion, is an announcement. See? Announcements still happen. This Wednesday, be there, okay? If you'd please stand for our closing song.